Thanks, Ken. Worship team. Happy Moms Day to the moms. Good to see you all here. Thank you for joining us. If you're visiting with us, especially glad to have you. Uh, we are, just a quick update, we are just right at the, uh, just kind of the threshold of moving into the new building. There's a couple of boxes left to check before we move in. Uh, so if you're viewing from home, you may notice the quality of the live stream has diminished a little bit over the last couple of weeks. That's because we moved all the uh, equipment over to the new building, getting ready to set up over there. And so hopefully within, uh, within a week or two, all that'll be up and running. And uh, we'll restore that for those who are viewing from home. But uh, for the rest of us, any Sunday you show up could be the Sunday we move in at this point. We're right here on the brink of moving into the new building. Uh, so I want to give you that update. This past week, I was a little torn. I really personally just really wanted to push to get in the new building, thinking about Mother's Day, just thinking about you moms and how exciting that would be to be in the new building, uh, for that to be some of, somewhat of a blessing to you as well. But then I started thinking about um, Thursday and Friday about to get into the new building, just the logistics required to do that. Uh, how many moms we would need to be involved in like Friday and Saturday and Sunday morning to get in there. And so in some ways, maybe this is just God's Mother's Day gift to you that we didn't have to ask that of you to get in the new building. So all that we put in the Lord's hands, trusting his goodness over that, that we'll be in there exactly when he means for us to be. And so I just want to give you those, those updates. Um, so we are in, as Ken read, uh, the book of Joshua and uh, chapter two and also in chapter six today. And, uh, and so you may, have, um, you may have picked up on um, the essence of where we're going today. That's, we're going to be looking at a story about this lady named Rahab who was a prostitute. And you're thinking, wait a second, isn't today Mother's Day? And so I just want to address that real quick. Uh, th that is correct. That's where we're headed today. But first of all, um, this is just what comes next in the story. Uh, and so I wanted to just throw that out there. I didn't write the Bible. Somebody else did. It was God who did that. But second of all, um, what we're going to see in uh, chapter six, especially of the book of Joshua, is um, this beautiful expression of God's love and mercy that we all need, and especially our moms. And so um, this is where we are in the book of Joshua. And, uh, and so just a little context. So as the nation of Israel has crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, this promised land, and they begin to take possession of it, God is leading them um, to conquer the land and take possession of it and begin to inhabit this promised land. Well, we saw last week in chapter five where he called the nation to stop on the plains of Jericho to, to celebrate the Passover meal together and to prepare their hearts to make sure that they had learned this lesson that man does not live off of bread alone before they step any further into this promised land. Now, the very next story in the Bible is Jericho. And Jericho is a fairly common story. It's a story of God leading his people to supernaturally conquer this city by simply marching around it and the walls falling down. But embedded in this story of Jericho is another story of one named Rahab, and she was a citizen of Jericho. And what's interesting is that very easily the author um, who's writing this down could have just glossed over her story and just simply referred to her as a woman from Jericho or a prostitute from Jericho, but she has a name. Her name is Rahab. And not only is that expressed to us in the book of Joshua, when we get to the New Testament, hundreds of years later, when the authors refer back to this moment in Israel's history, the authors think it's important that we know her by name. So we're gonna be looking at this together today. So backing up, what happened when, they, when, when Israel first entered to the promised land, Joshua, who's leading them now, he sends spies out to kind of take an assessment of the other people to figure out what they need to do to conquer. And so he sent spies into Jericho. 
And what we'll find out through chapter two, which Ken read, is that everybody who was living in Canaan had begun to hear about Israel and about how powerful their God was. And so there really was a lot of fear that was spreading throughout the land. This was true of Jericho. And so um, as the spies enter into Jericho, there is word that they're in Jericho and the king himself is on edge. And so he begins to kind of sniff out where these spies have landed and where are they hiding. And so it's Rahab who invites these spies into her home and then hides them on the roof and then helps them to escape uh, from the king. Okay, and so what we're gonna see today is that there's so much more going on here in the story. I wanna pick this up in chapter two looking at this conversation that Rahab has with the two spies who have entered into her home. Verse nine, and so she says to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan in Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. So stopping here, what Rahab is describing is what's happening in the hearts of those who are in Canaan, who are hearing about this coming Israelite army, who is being led by this, this God who seems to be um, invincible and, and, and undefeatable. And like he seems to continue to, to bring victory to this nation. But it's not just a fear of the Lord, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not just the fear of the Lord that's, 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 that's um, if you will, drenching Rahab's heart, but something else is going on in her heart when we look at what she declares next. So it's not just that she's scared. Look at what she says. For the Lord your God, God this is the second half of verse 11, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So it's not just that she's, fearful and she's scared of what might happen, she's making a declaration about the God of Israel saying, your God, he is the one true God. He is the God of heavens and he is the God of earth. And so now what she's going to do is she's gonna beg for mercy. She's gonna beg for undeserved kindness now from these spies. Look at verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. On the surface, it sounds like just a simple negotiation. You help us, we'll help you. And if we don't keep our word, may God strike us dead. You, you help us stay alive and we're gonna help you stay alive. Now, if that's all that God was intending to say to us, we really wouldn't need to know much about Rahab. 
we wouldn't even need to know her name. We just need to know as a citizen of Jericho who had a questionable profession, but who decided to help these guys because she was scared and she just wanted to kind of trade out, I'll save your life if you save my life. What we know about her heart is that she had heard about the power and the goodness of God towards his people. We knew that her heart was melting in fear, but we also know that she was declaring something that the God of Israel was the one true God, the Lord over the heavens and the Lord over the earth. And so they gave their word. She helps them escape. She hides them on the roof then helps them escape. Now fast forward to chapter six, where the nation of Israel is now gonna go into battle. They're gonna wage war against Jericho. And we'll pick this back up in verse 22 because Joshua is now gonna give instructions to these two spies. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron, of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So they kept their word. You, you save us, we'll save you. And again, just seems like a simple negotiation, one life for another. Now, if this were true, and that's all to be learned from Rahab, I don't know that her name would have needed to be mentioned, but I also don't think that she would show up again in the New Testament. Not only is she referred to the New Testament, she's referred to by name, that we might know her by name. In three places in the New Testament, Rahab is mentioned as a significant figure in God's story. So just some helpful, maybe Bible study help for you. When you see the name of a person mentioned in scripture, it's, it's so that we might see in them an example. Now, not always a good example. Oftentimes, bad examples are put forward. But whenever the Bible calls attention to somebody by name, it's important that we pay attention. Why is this person listed by name? So we get bad examples and good examples. However, the names aren't mentioned so that you will know who the heroes are. Okay, there's one hero in the story of the Bible, and that's Jesus. So beyond that, those who are served as good examples are simply serving as examples of what it looks like to live and follow the Lord by faith. Okay, they're not put forward. There's no character in the Bible put forward other than Jesus for the sake of their morality because they are perfectly obedient to God. Okay, so we have men and women listed in the scriptures that you and I might learn something about God through their story. That's why the names are mentioned there. That's why Peter's name is there. That's why Paul's name is there. That's why Rahab's name is there. And we'll see through the New Testament references what it is that you and I are supposed to learn about God through her story. We go to the book of James and the book of James, he's writing in chapter two about the relationship between good deeds or works and faith. Because see, Paul preached we're saved by faith and not by works so that nobody may boast. And that's a true theological statement. However, there were those within the church who heard Paul teaching that and said, oh, then no good works then, it's just by faith. I'll make a claim that I believe in God, I trust in Jesus by faith. I might even throw on the t-shirt, show up on Sunday, but there'll be no fruit that comes out of my life, no evidence that that faith I have is sincere. 
Even Jesus in Matthew 13 says, when we have a sincere faith, a sincere response to the gospel, it will produce fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 90, some 100 fold. Like it will look different in each believer's life. But the idea that my faith is separate from good deeds, James would say, even the demons have that level of faith and belief and shudder, right? But no good fruit comes out of a demon. And so now he's continuing that conversation in chapter two, James is, and look at what he says. He starts with, again, Abraham, an example of what it looks like to live by faith. Verse 29, excuse me, verse 21, James two, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. So Abraham wasn't saved by his good works alone. He was saved by faith, but that faith was active. It was producing good works. You go back and you read the story of Abraham and you go, well, surely Abraham was a moral guy, right? I mean, he's mentioned more than any other Old Testament character, Father Abraham, this man of faith. And yet you go read his story and you're like, man, Abraham, did you just sell your wife out? Did you just lie and call her your sister to save your own neck? Oh, look at that. Did you just do that again? And so Abraham is not put forward to us as this perfectly moral man whose character we need to emulate. There's only one character in the Bible whose character we are to emulate, and that's the character of Christ. He's put forward as a man of faith, though, how to follow and obey the Lord by faith. And James is pointing to his faith saying, that's active faith. When you believe in something to the level that you trust in something to the point where you obey, active faith, faith connected to good works. We take a step back and go, oh, that's a great example, James. Thank you. That helps me understand now faith. And James says, wait a second. I'm not done giving you examples of characters in the Bible who were saved by their faith that led to good works. So first of all, he continues talking about Abraham. He says this. Verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's a really big theological statement. That means that by Abraham's faith, God, holy God, rendered him as righteous. He clearly was not a righteous man by his own strength and by his own moral record, right? But God saw him as righteous. Why? Because of his faith, God rendered him as righteous and he was called a friend of God. Now look at what James says. And you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? In the same way we look to Abraham as this, this patriarch of the faith, this man of faith, not a, not a superstar moral guy, but still a decent dude who follows the Lord in faithfulness to the point where he offers up his son Isaac on the altar. We go, yeah, that's what faith looks like. And James says, wait a second, let me tell you about one more. In the same way that Abraham was justified by his faith that was active, that led to good works, so was Rahab the prostitute. Now, he didn't have to add that on there at the end, but I think he did because he wanted us to understand something about who God is. So we look at Abraham, a man who left his father's household. He goes to this foreign land. He's following God faithfully and he's, he's offering his son up on the altar. And we go, well, that makes sense. And James says, well, let me just make sure you understand what I'm talking about here. You wanna know what faith looks like that's active? 
you go back and you read the story of Rahab. You look at what she did as well. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified, that means rendered righteous by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You wanna know what a live faith looks like? You can look at Abraham or you can look at Rahab. In the same way that Abraham was rendered righteous, so was, so was Rahab. In the same way Abraham was called a friend of God, so was Rahab. The book of Hebrews reiterates this as well. Chapter 11, mentioning all these men and women of faith. The author of Hebrews in verse 29 says, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. We could just move on. But the author of Hebrews says, wait a second, there's one more story that I want you to know about in Jericho. By faith, 31, by faith, the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So we see this is not just a simple story um, about this this prostitute who who made a negotiation with some spies to save her neck and exchange, or save their neck in exchange for saving her neck. Something else is going on here. Something deeper is going on here in, in the story. Now, before we read Matthew chapter one, I wanna talk for a minute about what we might know about Rahab to begin with, okay? So just based on what we know in her profession, there's a lot of things we can assume about Rahab. She was more than likely an outcast among her own people. She was regarded as a possession, discarded as being partially human. If you don't know what her profession was and you're a kiddo, your parents will explain it to you later. But essentially, people gave her money um, so that she would make them feel good about themselves, make them feel loved for a moment, make them feel accepted. This is what she did. But every time she did this, she gave a piece of herself away, a piece of her dignity away, in exchange for shame, in exchange for the horror of being rejected. For every person she made feel good, right, on her, on her heart was the shame that just washed over her and made her feel horrible. And this is before God rescued her. Right? This is who she was among her own people, Now, it's interesting because in the list of people that she begs to be saved, there's no mention of a husband or kids. And when she talks about her mother and her father and her brothers, she says, and everybody who belongs to my brothers. Why? Because her brothers had family. She didn't have a husband. She didn't have children, which kind of comes with the profession, right? You give all those things up. You're branded as an outcast, unworthy. You'll never be married. You'll never have children, Rahab. Your best hope is that once you're too old to work for yourself, somebody will have pity on you and, and give you food and give you a place to live. Because ultimately you've, you've been branded, you've been rejected. Now this is who she was in Jericho. Now think about this, apart from God's miraculous work in her life, to step into the nation of Israel wasn't gonna be much better. Because just being an inhabitant of Jericho meant for the nation of Israel that she would be stiff-armed and rejected. She was unclean. She lived among pagans. She lived among people who worship pagans. She herself had more than likely participated in pagan worship. You add on top of that her profession, what she did, what she was known for, and the Israelites wouldn't even have gone down her street, right? So if they'd have known who she was and what she did, would avoid at all costs even making eye contact with her. So imagine fleeing for her life with her family and then going to the camp of Israel, what she expected to, when she entered in, what 
the way that people would respond to her. Now, I say all that to set up why I think Rahab is, is really mentioned here. So there's one more place in your Bible in the New Testament where Rahab is mentioned. It's in Matthew chapter one. And it's among a list of genealogies, which tends to be the place where we get bored and we yawn and we push through. We know it's there for a reason, but we don't fully understand the reason why these genealogies are in our Bible. Like, what does it have to do with me? And it's in the book of Matthew chapter one. I'm gonna pick this up in verse two that we read. Now, the overview of what we're about to read is that Matthew, the gospel writer, wants us to see Jesus's connection to Abraham, how he's a descendant of David and a descendant of Abraham. And so we're reading this starting in verse two. I just have to give me a minute. Um, Unexpectedly, these verses have wrecked me every time I've read them this morning. Understanding all we know about Rahab, understanding what she should have expected out of life, let alone Israel, the true worshipers of the one true God, and we, we read these words. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. So far, we get a lot of dads mentioned. It's Mother's Day, I, I acknowledge that. And Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. What an expression of God's mercy and redemption. Nothing about Rahab guaranteed that Israel owed her anything. And if they had kept their word and just kept her safe and rescued her from the city, there was no promise or guarantee that they were going to incorporate her into Israelite culture and life and open up their worship to her, to allow her to worship the one true God. And yet we find her name listed here in the lineage, not just of David, but the lineage of Jesus. She's listed as the mother of Boaz, the great, great grandmother of David, and an ancestor of Jesus himself. It's not what we would expect. At most, Israel would have let her live at the edge of camp to glean from the crumbs that are thrown away in the garbage dump, to find some kind of existence as a, as a beggar and an outcast. And yet we find her here, not just incorporated into the nation, into the culture, but she's listed as a wife and a mom and a great-grandmother, that is no small thing. There's a reason why Rahab the prostitute is listed in your scriptures. God did more than just spare her physical life and the life of her family. He rendered her as righteous. Like, do you understand the implications of that? As though she had never sinned. That's not a small thing. He rendered her as righteous. He considered her to be a friend of God. He adopted her into his family. She lived among the Israelites to marry. She married Solomon, a woman who had given up, long since given up hope on ever being a wife, is now married to an Israelite. She gives birth to a son. Boaz, and she raises him 
to be the kind of man who will respect women, who will treat them as precious. You don't know the story of Boaz and Ruth and Naomi? This would be great homework for you this week. Go read the story of the son that she raised. At the pinnacle of the story, Naomi and Ruth, this loving mother-in-law who wants her widowed daughter-in-law to remarry. So they're looking for a kinsman redeemer and Boaz is qualified to to marry this daughter-in-law and to redeem the fact that she's now a widow. And so the mother-in-law sends her to basically to the farm, to the threshing room floor, to lay down at the feet of Boaz. And when he wakes up, he would find her there. Puts her in this really vulnerable situation, right? This could go a couple different ways. Boaz is the man of integrity and respect and he sees her there. He doesn't take advantage of her, but he treats her with dignity. Who is his mom? Rahab. Rahab the prostitute who had been redeemed, forgiven, rendered righteous and considered a friend of God. Not only that, she's the great, great grandmother of King David and she's in the lineage of Jesus himself. And according to the Bible, according to what James says, she is your sister in Christ. When you see her in heaven, she will no longer be Rahab the prostitute. She'll be Rahab, daughter of the most high God. Now, a lot of implications for our life today, a lot of implications even for the moms in the room. One, we look at her story and we go, well, if God can redeem and love a person like that, surely he can redeem and love me. Be careful with that one. Here's why. In the Bible, God describes your disobedience to him as being a prostitute. Book of Hosea, case in point, mentioned multiple times in the New Testament, again and again. Like that is how God sees our unfaithfulness. So we're not to look at Rahab and go, oh, she's the worst of the worst. If God can save her, he can save me because I'm not that bad. But be cautious there because what God would say to all of us in our disobedience is that we are like an unfaithful wife who's abandoned her loving, gracious husband. And that's what our sin does. It renders us uh, as a harlot before God. And so you see, there's hope in Rahab's story for all of us today, isn't there? When we think about the struggles of moms in particular, and I glean this only from my experiences interacting with moms, especially like in counseling settings. So there's a phrase I hear over and over and over and over again from moms in a counseling setting as it relates to children. And the, the, the phrase is some version of this. I feel like a horrible mom. The word horrible will sometimes get changed out for other adjectives and descriptives. But this, the point is the same. I feel like a horrible mom. Like I have heard that more than any other phrase from moms in counseling settings. I need you to pray for me, why? Because I feel like a horrible mom. I feel like I've failed this week. I feel like I've let my children down. How old are your children? They're in kindergarten. How old are your children? They're grown adults. It's the same thing, the same struggle. And I know that there are reasons for that. I mean, the moment you bring a child into this world, in that very moment, you feel the weight and the responsibility of that calling. Somehow it's your job to make that little thing happy, to keep that little thing from crying, to keep that little thing alive. And when you can't do that, when you can't stop the crying, when you can't seem to make them happy, automatically you feel like a failure, right? And then, and then that, that all happens like week one, right? And then you grow to learn that this cute little thing that you had all these hopes for ends up being a rebellious little snot-nosed thing 
It lies, it steals, it cheats, it manipulates. And that's all before potty training begins. <laughs> Wait till they get their feet on them and they start running around. You're like, gosh, every time I turn around, I feel like a failure. I don't want to send my kids to daycare. I'm afraid of what will happen. I don't want to send my kids to school. I'm afraid of what the teachers will think about my kid and therefore think about me. I don't want to let my kids spend the night or have play dates. I'm afraid. Like you, you, kinda, you, you know that, that feeling when you get your kid back from somebody who's had them like, oh God, oh God, I hope they were good. And then the parents are like, your kids were so respectful and well-behaved. And you're like, that's not the way they act with me. Take them to the grocery store and see what happens, right? You have these little physical reminders of the difficulty of your calling and your task. And their rebellion, their sinful heart, if you're not careful, will cause you to see yourself as a failure. Now, add on top of that, the current parenting climate of social media, it's just worse right? Because you're seeing the Photoshop version of all the other moms, the birthday parties that they're throwing for their kids. Have you felt the shame of that yet? If you don't reserve the room or the space or the thing and spend the money and like, and your kids are seeing it, they're going to all these great birthday parties. We went to one where the family rented a whole BMX park, the whole park. Like, my, it was blowing. I had fun. I rode the bus. This is so cool. And one of my kids is like, hey, can we do that for my birthday? I'm like, no. Absolutely not. Well, they do, why not? I'm like, cuz, you're not worth it. <laughs> just, just kidding, just kidding. But there's, there's all this added pressure with social media, right? To Photoshop your life and to be the perfect parent. And you can't see all the rebellion and wickedness of their children that's behind all those pictures. It just looks perfect. But I'll say this. I, I think that the greatest critic and the greatest pressure doesn't come from social media. It doesn't come from your children. It comes from yourself and your own heart. Moms, you tend to be your own greatest critic for some reason. And I think this is probably true of ladies in general. You have a hard time seeing yourself as you are, and especially the way that God sees you. You take all that struggle and you put it on Rahab, but try to imagine just the difficulty of that battle with shame and embarrassment and feeling like a failure. So moms, moms, I want to read to you just some words that I wrote down, some implications of the story of Rahab and and what it it means for you today. And and, in reality, it means for all of us. If you're a lady here and you're not a mom, it's okay, this is for you. If you're a man here, this is for you. But I especially want to read it over our moms. The calling to be perfect, to be a perfect mom is an impossible task. And if you're a mom, you know what I'm talking about because you've tried it again and again. The good news starts with understanding that you can never be everything your children need. Has anybody told you that? It isn't your job to make them happy. It isn't. You've been tasked with keeping them alive, give them some food, teach them discipline, point them to the Lord, but it isn't your job to fulfill their every need. Like moms, I'm looking at some great moms. I mean this with all my heart. You're not a very good savior, okay? You're not. You're a great mom, but you're a lousy savior. And the moment you try to meet all your children's needs, you're trying to be their savior and you can't do it. It's an impossible task. You aren't enough. The good news is, that Jesus is enough. He is enough. Listen, 
Moms, one of the greatest gifts that you could receive today, it actually can't come from your children. It's the, it's, it's the gift that Rahab received. It's a gift that can only come from Jesus himself. It's the gift of God's mercy and the, and the gift of God's redemption. Have you failed as a mom? Yes. This is where God's redemption comes in. He redeems our failures. He doesn't pretend like our failures didn't happen. He takes our failures. He takes where we fall short and he turns it into something better than you could have done had you not failed. Listen, when you think about Rahab's just mindset before God rescued her from Jericho, I'm sure she thought these things. I'm not good enough to be a wife. I'm not good enough to be a mom. I'm not even good enough to have friends or be invited to, to parties. I'm not even good enough to be a normal person walking down the streets of Jericho. Extract her from Jericho, bring her into the camp of Israel. I'm sure she thought these things. I'm not good enough to be here. I don't deserve to be here. I don't belong. I'm an outsider. I don't look like these Israelite women. If they know what I've done, if they know my past, they'll never accept me. I'm never gonna get married. I'm never gonna be a mom. I'm never gonna be good enough. You know what, the truth is that in her own strength, she, she wasn't good enough. It's not why God saved Rahab. It's not why she shows up in the, in the lineage of Jesus. She had ruined her reputation in Jericho and she didn't stand a chance among the Israelites. And this is where God's good enough washes over her not good enough. This is where God takes an impossible story, flips it upside down. He takes what the enemy intended as evil against Rahab and flips it for his good. And he writes his redemption story over creation through her. That's not a small thing. Moms, I, I know that the calling of mom is a high calling and I don't mean to demean that, but I want you to understand something. You actually have a higher calling than mom. I'm looking at some fantastic moms, but you actually have a higher calling than that. You know what it is? It's first to be a daughter. Every lady in this room, whether you're a mom or not, you are a daughter. And I'm not talking about your earthly family. We don't really know who Rahab's parents were. Maybe she's just following in the footsteps of her mom. We don't know. But here's what we do know. She was adopted into God's family. She was rendered as righteous and considered a daughter of the most high God. And ladies, listen to me. That's your primary calling. That supersedes mom. That supersedes wife. That supersedes school teacher. Whatever your job is, your highest calling is the calling of Rahab, and that is to be the daughter of the most high God in whom he is well pleased. If you don't believe that God is pleased with you, moms, ladies, you don't fully understand the gospel. If you're still sitting there thinking, there's no way God could be pleased with me, you're focused on your failures. Based on your failures, you're right. But this is where Jesus comes in and redeems your failures. God renders you as righteous, perfect, holy, which means now he's pleased with you. If you're in Christ, you're God's daughter. And he's pleased with you. But listen, he's not pleased with you because you're an awesome mom or an awesome wife. He's pleased with you because you're his. Think about that. God is pleased with you because you're his. Listen, if you're in Christ, you've been washed clean today. You've been rendered as righteous. You've been adopted into God's family and your, your failures have been redeemed. 
So moms, it's not flowers or cards that you need today. It is the love and the mercy and the acceptance that only Jesus can provide. If you're looking for what your children can give to you, it's never gonna be enough. They'll get it right occasionally and they'll give you all kinds of warm fuzzies and you'll be like, oh, I'm so proud of my kids. Beware, that's gonna change in just a moment. And listen, while we're talking about gifts, moms, um, one of the greatest gifts you could give to your children is not their favorite sandwich packed in the plastic bag in a brown bag ready for, like, for school. It's not the perfect birthday. It's not a perfect patience with their failures. The greatest gift you can give to your children, moms, listen to this, is teach your children what to do with their failures. If you don't allow the mercy of Jesus to wash over your failures, you're never gonna teach them what to do with their failures. If all you do is just stew in regret and shame of feeling like a failure, listen, your children aren't gonna know what to do with their failures. The greatest gift you could give to your children is show them how to take their failures to the feet of the cross, to Jesus himself. Own your failures in front of your children. Where you've let them down, where you've made mistakes, ask for forgiveness. I know, I know. That means admitting you're not the perfect mom. Maybe the greatest gift I could give to you is to say, hey, you're not a perfect mom. Can we just establish that and move on? You're not. Own your failures in front of your children. Show them what to do with their mistakes. Otherwise, you're gonna send them off in the world to be adults that have no idea what the gospel is, no idea that Jesus can redeem stories like Rahab and he can redeem theirs. And so one of the greatest gifts you could give to your children is to show them what to do with their mistakes and their failures. So we always say on Mother's Day, happy Mother's Day. And I just wanna acknowledge that that may not be the case for you today if you're a mom. There's a number of reasons why that could be true. Like I just know in our own church family within the last 12 months, some of you have lost moms. And so maybe today is your first Mother's Day without your mom. So today's just hard for you. I know we have some ladies in our church trying to get pregnant right now who have not yet been able to do that. We have some in our church who've been trying for years and have kind of given up on ever becoming pregnant. We've had some who've miscarried. And so maybe today is just a reminder of that. And you, maybe you're feeling like a failure. You know, maybe right now your relationship with your children is estranged and you're wondering, will they ever come home? Will I ever have that relationship with them again? You're praying for them. You're pleading for God's mercy over their lives. And you wonder, will, will I ever have that relationship with my children again? Will they ever come to know the Lord? Will they ever come to love the Lord? And so maybe that's what's on your mind today. Listen, we all need the same thing today. We need not only the mercy of Jesus, we need to believe in a Jesus who can redeem what the enemy intends for harm against you, who can redeem your greatest failures as a parent and your children's greatest failures. I'm just asking you, do you believe in that Jesus today? I wanna pray over us right now. And I just say, wanna say to you, if you're here today and you've never taken a step of faith to trust in Jesus, the same step of faith that Abraham took, the same step of faith that Rahab took, placing your life in his hands, saying, I trust you to redeem me, to forgive me, to render me as righteous and adopt me as your, as your child, then I want you to take that step today. If you wanna talk with somebody, we've got pastors available. Our elders are here. Um, Ken was one of our elders. Nick is here. We have other elders available. They have a lanyard on. Be honored to talk with you and pray with you. Or maybe you're just a mom here today who's, who's struggling to believe the gospel that God could redeem your failures. We'd be honored to pray with you today before you leave. Let's pray together and then we're gonna respond.